Father, we pray that you would guard us from the evil one. And we pray that you would block out every distraction and destroy every resistance in our hearts to your word. We ask that you would be glorified now. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, three weeks ago, we went with Paul to the city of Thessalonica. And while Paul only spent three weeks there, we spent two Sundays with him and with the Thessalonians looking at Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian congregation. He noted their faith in the Lord. He noted their love towards one another and he commended them. And then he he prayed that they would be established and encouraged. He was so anxious to know what was going on in their hearts as he was torn away from them because the whole city was sent up into an uproar. And so they sent Timothy to see what was going on. And his desire was that they would be unshaken in the midst of the afflictions that they faced. And then last week, we went from Thessalonica to Paul's missionary journey into Ephesus. And the letter to the Thessalonians was written on his first missionary journey. Now we fast forward, we jump several years into the future, so to speak, to go with him into Ephesus and see what's going on there. One of the things I noted last week was that in Ephesus, you have possibly a bunch of people who are, who have seen the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And you have heavy hitters, people who are pillars in the church. You have Priscilla, you have Aquila, you possibly have the apostle John, you have Timothy there. Jesus's mother is also there. And now Paul is there. And what Paul is looking to do is he's looking to establish the congregation in Ephesus as they've made a clean break from the occult. The whole city was steeped in the worship of Artemis, otherwise known as Diana. They felt themselves to be so important because they guarded this temple. This was the temple warden of the seven wonders of the Roman Empire, the temple dedicated to Artemis. She was the great protector of Ephesus, and everyone who was involved in the city of Ephesus was steeped in this occult ritual glorification of Artemis. And we saw in Acts chapter 19 last week that they had a public book burning, which totaled probably to about $6 million, where they burned all of their sorcery books, all of their magic books. And if you were to check their bank accounts to see what they loved and what they spent their time in, it would probably be the occult. And so Paul comes in and... When you have Paul coming in with all of God's people gathered together, you have this shaking up of the people there in the city of Ephesus as they are breaking away from what they're used to, which is the occult, and now coming into the kingdom of Christ. And so this morning, as we look in verses 17 through 19, we're specifically focusing on Paul's prayer. I said last week that the, the, the text was, or the, the sermon was all set up, not try, trying to set you up, but set us up for what Paul is praying for in verses 17 through 19. Ouija boards, the Enneagram, yoga practices, tarot cards, horoscopes, mediums, energy crystals, Even so-called private revelations from God are all examples 
of both wicked and even possibly demonic practices which serve to undermine the sufficiency of God's word. I'm saying this because in our culture today, when you look around, you have people that are scurrying or looking for some word from God and they're not going through the right places the, the way that the Lord has established. And so he's given us all that we need in his word. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 8, verse 20. The Lord says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no light in them. And in the following verses, the Lord proceeds to condemn any kind of divination. So in hard times, in times of affliction, people will either go one of two directions. They'll look to either the Lord himself through the means that he has established, which is his word, or they will suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness and go after the lie which the world tells them. It's better off to seek out other gods rather than the Lord himself. And this is a relentless warfare that we are facing today. This is not a new warfare because we've seen this in the garden itself where the, 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 the devil comes to Eve and says, Did the Lord really say? And this is not an, a question of curiosity as if we didn't hear the right way. It's a question to undermine the sufficiency of God's word right from the beginning. And so your greatest need today, our greatest need today, and the greatest need that the Ephesians had is that the Lord would provide a spirit of wisdom and knowledge in him so that they would grow in knowing God. That is our greatest need today. It's not that we would have our political system all organized and dealt with in the right way. It's not that we would, have, we would be free from any physical ailments that we have. Our greatest need for our souls today and the world's greatest need is that they would hear the preaching of God's word. And it is through the preaching of God's word, it is through the sufficiency of God's word that people go from death to life, from darkness to light. There is no other way that you come to know the Lord unless it's through the preaching of God's word where Christ is placarded in front of our eyes and we see the Lord Jesus for who he is. And this is exactly what Paul is doing in the letter to the Ephesians. So this morning as we have our Bibles open, I hope that you have your Bible so that you can see for yourself with your own eyes what we're going through. My aim this morning is that we would grow from milk to me. That's not a that's not a overnight process, but this is a slow and steady process called sanctification that we would grow from milk to meat. The writer to the Hebrews says, I'm shocked that you guys are not are still eating milk or having milk when you should be on meat. And so my desire is that the Lord would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Verses 15 and 16, look with me there. Paul says, for this reason, and this is right before he gets into the prayer. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The reason that Paul is giving thanks to the Lord for the Ephesians is because of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love towards one another. But what underpins all of that is everything that he has said from verses 1 through verse 14. 
and you see cataloged for you. If you ever want something to study for yourself, if you're ever wondering, how can I grow in knowing the Lord? Well, just take the first chapter of Ephesians. Because here, you see the mighty works of God, the wonders of God, the riches of His glory here presented for us, in front of us, so that we would grow in knowing Him. And I suspect that for 21st century Christians, for Americans, for us, one of the hardest things for us to see are the glories of the Lord. When we're so distracted with our phones, when we're so distracted with what's on the news, with, with our work and our families, the hardest thing for us to see is the glory and the riches of our Savior. And so why is this so dangerous? Why is Paul praying for their eyes to be opened? Which is what we're going to see. First, if they can't see the Lord for all that He is for them in Christ, there is a very real and present danger that they might go, they might go back to their old ways of living. And then the objection comes. But I thought they were Christians already. How are they going to go back to the way that they were? That's true. However, if they don't lay hold of the means that God has provided for them to grow, then the chances are that Paul may have labored in vain and their conversion was actually not a true and genuine conversion. In fact, Paul says this in his letter to the Thessalonians and in his letter to the Philippians. He doesn't want to labor in vain. He is diligently using the means that God has provided so that they would continue to grow. And if they slip back into their old ways of life, if they go back to the customs that they have built up for themselves, those sinful patterns of life, and if they eventually harden their hearts to the point where they renounce Christ, then we have to question whether they were truly saved in the first place. So Paul knows this, and so he labors, he diligently labors, and he prays. And second, if he doesn't pray that the Lord would enable them to see, to grow in knowing the Lord, they will never develop into a mature congregation. What does a mature congregation look like? Well, we'll see that in just a moment. But if Christ is the head of his church and his body is weak and flimsy and immature, then this adequately represent our Lord himself especially to a watching world the third danger is the real possibility of them being wind tossed by every destructive doctrine that would come their way and you don't have to go far to understand that there are doctrines that claim to be Christian doctrines that claim to put Christ forward, and they're really deceptive doctrines. You don't have to look far. You can look at the Word of Faith movement, for instance, that deceptively says that you need more faith, and if someone dies in your family or someone gets sick, it's because you didn't have enough faith. Or the Prosperity Gospel movement, which says all of the blessings that God has promised for us in the age to come are ours now, and that we have to be wealthy and rich right here and right now. Well, tell that to the Lord who said, I don't have a place to lay my head. And these are real dangers that face, that the Ephesian churches faced, 
and that we today face as a church. This is why we pray for other congregations. Not just the Haven, but we pray for other congregations like Franklin Square, Trinity Church, and all of the other churches that we that are in our presbytery and every single church that names the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we are not praying and using the means that God has given to us, the chances are they also may be weak. They also may be immature. They also may be liable to the deceptive doctrines that are out there in the world. And so what does Paul pray? He says in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Who is the him? It's God the Father. This is a knowledge of God. His desire is that they would grow in knowing God. Not Artemis, not Diana, not anything else. But his greatest desire is that they would grow in knowing God. And this is why when you look at all of the prayers of Paul, you see that there's overlap between some of his prayers because it is the same thing that he is constantly concerned with in every single church, in every single congregation. And I am sure that if he was here at the Haven Church this morning, sitting right here, he would say, your greatest need is that you would grow in knowing God. Because if you don't grow in knowing the Lord, you are susceptible and liable to everything else. There is no neutral ground when it comes to learning. Either you will learn the ways of the Lord or you will learn the ways of the world. And so Paul is praying that the Father, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Now, Two things to note about this particular verse, if you're looking at it with me in verse 17. This is not to say that Jesus is any lesser than God the Father. It is to highlight the mediatorial work of Christ. Paul is highlighting Christ's role as the mediator, the only mediator between God and man. There are no temple priests, Ephesians that can mediate between you and God. There are no occult rituals that can mediate between you and God. But we have the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is covenantal language. Because if you grew up as a Jew, you know that the God of our fathers was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. But now that we have a Savior, a new Redeemer, a perfect Redeemer, He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at what he says. He prays that they they get the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. I take this to be, and most people would take this to mean the Holy Spirit. And the reason why is because this is not just a, a spiritual, mental ascent, exercise to know, just know some random cocktail factoids about the Lord. This is a growing in the wisdom that God gives to his people so that they can live every single area of their lives to the praise and the glory of his grace. And this is why chapters 4 through 6 are all concerned with practical things. Whereas chapters 1 through 3 are concerned with the doctrinal, the heavy weight lifting, the foundational things that you need in order to live your life moment by moment in the grace and the glory of the Lord. And so the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him is the work of the spirit. This also goes back to Isaiah. When the promised Messiah is told, we're told of the promised Messiah that on him will rest the spirit of wisdom and knowledge in Isaiah 11. 
And so the same spirit that rests on our Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, is the same spirit whom Jesus himself said he would send and give to you. And honestly, the reality of this is that Paul's desire is that their communion with the Lord would deepen and sweeten. And one of the things that we have to ask ourselves as we're going through our daily lives, as we're going moment by moment, as we're looking other people in the eye, as we're going shopping, as we're on Amazon, as we're doing whatever we're doing, whatever it is we're doing, we're at the gas station, we're stopped at a red light, is are we truly growing in knowing the Lord by asking Him to give us more of His Spirit? This is what Paul is praying for. This is the most important thing. And then he says in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. It's like your, eye, your, your hearts have eyes to see, eyeballs to see the true realities of what God has revealed. And so the idea is that he wants them to have the spirit of wisdom to be able to see for all that it is, the beauties and the wonders of who God is. And this is why he gets to three specific petitions after this. In order for them to understand the rest of this letter, they have to have this first. In order for them to understand what he's about to say in the, in, in, in the rest of this letter, they have to ask the Lord for a spirit of wisdom and knowledge in him. So what does he ask? Well, he asks for three things, that they would know the hope to which they have been called, that they would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and that they would know the great power, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So we'll look at that one at a time. To know the hope to which he has called you. Again, if you look at the world around you, you see that everyone is trying to find ways to have hope in their life. How do you deal with sickness and trial? How do you deal with the death in the family if you have no anchor for your soul? How do you deal with people who are sacrificing their children, Ephesians, to Artemis, and they've just lost their child? Where is the hope? The hope here that he is asking that the Lord would help them to understand and know is found and grounded in the person and work of Christ himself. But it's not just in the person and work of Christ. It's the entire scope of salvation which he's gone on to talk about in verses 1 through 14. This whole, uh, this whole salvation that God has undertaken to save his people, to call them out of darkness, and focusing their eyes, the attention of their eyes, on the one who was able to implement that perfectly, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our hope. He is our hope. In verse 12 he says, so that we, so he's talking to them, he says, well, let me back up in verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Notice he says, we who were the first to hope in Christ. And then he turns the language directly to them. And he says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and he doesn't say hoped in him. He says, believed in him. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I would have expected him to say hope. 
But instead, he says, believed. And so, in Paul's mind, he is equating hoping in Christ. Not just the way the world will say, I hope and I cross my fingers that God will save me. This is a true and living hope, as Peter would say. And this is grounded in Christ. And he equates hope with believing and trusting in him. And the grounds of our hope is our Lord Jesus Christ, which Hebrew, the author to the Hebrews says. And then he says... This is what I want you to know. I want you to know this hope. I want you to know the whole scope of your salvation, which is grounded in our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know that you have a hope that goes beyond the grave. Because Christ lives, you also live. And so he asks that they would grow in knowing the hope to which God has called us. The grounds for our hope is Christ himself. And the hope involves not just being in communion with God in Christ, but the whole scope of our salvation that he predestined us, that he loved us from the foundations of the world. And this goes into our inheritance. What is the inheritance that he wants us to know? What is that inheritance? Not only do the Ephesians need to know this hope to which God has called them, but they needed the spirit of wisdom and of revelation to know what the inheritance is among the saints. Now we can say that the people that God has saved are God's inheritance, the way he set his affection on the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 7. I didn't choose you because you were great or large, but I chose you because I loved you. But... There's more to the riches of this inheritance. And I'm just going to extract two for you this morning. Let's look back at verse, verse 4. What are some of those riches of our inheritance? Number one, it's to know the time that God has called us. Verse 4 tells us that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And here, I will raise the question. How long, how long was the time between God's choosing you and A.D. 54 or A.D. 60 when Paul wrote this letter? Or let's stretch it out even further to 2023. What was that time span between the God's choosing of you and 2023 when you made your profession of faith or whenever it was? Why didn't the Lord decide, you know what, this is way too long. I'm not going to love these people anymore. When you see the reality of your own heart, you see your own sinfulness before the, the Lord. If you saw the sinfulness of my own heart, you would turn and run in horror. And if all of the secrets of your heart were exposed before a watching world, everyone would recoil in horror. So why didn't the Lord just give up? How much time did the Lord take in order to save you? And then we look at the purpose. He chose you in order that you would be holy and blameless before him. He wants you in his presence. And to underscore this, to press this home, Paul states that in love he adopted you. So it's not enough that he makes you right before him. But then he says, you are now welcome from, as some people would say, from the courtroom into my living room. 
What are the riches of our inheritance? The fact that the Lord chose us in the first place. That's at least one part of it. And not only did the Lord choose you, but he gave you a purpose with which to live this life. So that your hope is not in the things of this world. Your hope is found in the creator of this world. Who designed you, and as our confession says, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Or as the psalmist writes, David writing in Psalm 1611, In your presence there is a fullness of joy, not in the car washed down the street, not in the things that you buy, not in the wealth that you accumulate, but in your presence there is a fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Paul would press this home even further. So as if this, is, this weren't enough, Paul presses this home and reminds them where they stood before the Lord saved them. But you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So the chief, the, the, the chief thing that stood between you and the Lord was your sins. And so the Lord dealt with that. And the hope that we have is not only grounded in our Lord Jesus Christ, but the riches also flow out of that too. All the riches that we have flow out of our union with Christ. And this is why I've said, if you do a study on the, the, the letter to the Ephesians, you'll notice that in the, just the first three chapters alone, 27 times, Paul says, in him, in Christ, in him, in him, in him. And what does that go back to? The Lord saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can't even wash your car. Apart from me, you can't even eat breakfast. Apart from me, you can't even put on your shoe. Apart from me, you can't even think straight. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Stop going to 12-step programs. Stop looking for TED Talks. This is not an Ephesus TED Talk for Paul. This is reality, and he's dealing with Reality. He's not trying to make bad people good. He's trying to tell them about the deadness of their sins and how the Lord brought them to life. And then he goes on to say that he wants them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. Notice the direction of this power. It's toward us who believe. And he explains that in verses 20 through 23. He wants, a, he wants them to know not only how immeasurable it is and how great it is, but that this is real power working in real time and in real space. The same power that created the heavens and the earth, that put all the stars in the sky, now is at work to raise Christ from the dead. And if Christ is raised from the dead, then those whom he saved, it's guaranteed that he will also raise you from the dead. And this is why we see that we are seated in heavenly places according to Paul, according to the scripture. So if Christ is raised from the dead, if this is true, and it is, then your salvation is guaranteed. It's as good as done. You got any people struggling here this morning? Are you facing anxieties? Are you facing struggles this week? Like, man, I've sinned my way out of God's grace. Well, the Lord calls us 
to know this power. This is not just a power that can raise people from the dead, but it can sustain them throughout the entirety of their lives so that their sanctification might look like the stock market, but it's always trending upwards. And this is why it's a shame when people who profess their faith in Christ 30-something years ago, 20-something years ago, are still dealing with the elementary doctrines of Scripture, and they haven't grown one bit. We are called to grow in knowing the Lord. His resurrection is the proof of both your hope and your inheritance. And because, like I've said, He lives, you live. God raised Him from the dead. The God-man who bore every weight of every sin from every sinner, from Adam to whoever the last person is that the Lord has saved, God has borne that. And if every single person's sin deserves an infinite eternal weight of judgment, then multiply that by the innumerable people who God has saved. And that was the weight of sin that Christ bore on the cross. Not only did he bear that weight, but then he bore the weight of God's wrath on every single individual's sin that every sinner deserves. You try coming back from the dead. You can't do it. And so this is why Christ is put as front and center. The Lord who fills all in all, who is over all things, and who is the head of his church, is the one that we look to. And this is why it's so dangerous to talk about that the church is not doing this and the church is not doing this, because it's the Lord's church. This is like going up to someone's spouse and saying, your spouse is not doing enough. All the time. Well... We can say that about God's church and we can rightly so say we need to do more. Yes, but remember it is the Lord's church and it is the Lord who gives his spirit of wisdom so that his church would grow into maturity. So where does that leave us? If the Lord doesn't open your eyes, the eyes of your heart, you won't love the Lord for who he is. Let's press this home just a little bit, a little bit more. And let's look not just at what Paul is saying to the Ephesians, but look at what the Lord is saying to you, the Haven Church. If the Lord doesn't give us a spirit of wisdom and, and revelation in the knowledge of him, if we're not praying this for ourselves, then ultimately we'll look for hope in everything else. We can look for it in ice cream. We can look for it in TV shows. We can look for something to hold on to, to break the darkness of the clouds that hang over our heads. And we'll ultimately be left in our despair. We'll have no hope and we will suffer under the crushing weight of aimlessness and despair. But the Lord has called you to a living hope. If we're not praying for this, we will be totally ignorant of the riches of his inheritance among the saints. And this is an inheritance that involves communion with the living God. Yes, the table does point to our communion with the Lord. But this is an ongoing walking with the Lord. So that at the end of your life, someone can say, or in the beginning of your life, or somewhere in the middle, someone can say, he walked with God and she walked with God. But if we are not praying for this, then we will look for our inheritance in the purchasing of cars, in the purchasing of clothes, in the luxuries of this life, 
finding rest in our backyards. If we're not praying that the Lord would give us a spirit of wisdom, we will ultimately not know the power of God and ultimately we'll try to earn God's favor and say, I need to do more. I need to make God love me and make God like me. No. No, if his love were dependent on your actions, then none of us would be here. If God's love were dependent on what he saw that you were going to do tonight or what you did last night or yesterday, then none of us would be here. But his love is not set on your actions and your decision for the Lord, on a card or a profession of faith that you made. The profession of faith that you once made is just evidence of what he has already done to you. But the Lord's love is not based on anything that we could ever do. It's based on him. And the reality of our whole Christian life is that it is a process of excavation, of demolition, And of restoration. Why is it excavation? Because some of those sinful patterns and habits that you have built along the way need to be rooted out. And that process is painful. What about demolition? Well, some of the things that you do need to be destroyed. Like stop doing that. What are some of those things? Stop believing the lie that you're not good enough for God. Because it's true, you're not good enough for God. But He chose you anyway. We're not fit to be in His presence. But He still chose us and He still called us into His presence, right? So stop believing that you have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and make yourself acceptable more and more to God. No, the Lord saved you. So live out of the joy and the love that God has provided for you, right? And this doesn't mean that we just passively go on in life. This means that we are actively killing sin. So we're battling our sins with what God's word says. So if God's word says stop committing sexual immorality, we stop and we ask for the Spirit's help to commit good works, to do good works, and to go and be faithful to our spouses and go and be faithful to our jobs and go and be faithful in all of our conduct by the Spirit's help. And then restoration, as we are growing and knowing in the Lord, and He renovates us, then we begin to see God's work in one another's lives. This is why He says, I give thanks, I don't stop giving thanks, because I've heard of your faith and your love toward all the saints. How do you hear about someone's love for another believer? Unless it's actually supernatural. Unless you're actually doing stuff. So what does Paul call us to? This morning, the Lord is calling us to grow up in him. And this begins by praying that the Haven Church, you that are sitting here, would grow in a spirit of wisdom, that the Lord would give more of his spirit to us. That we would grow in the spirit of wisdom and knowledge and revelation of him. And that not only would we grow, but that every single one of us, as we look at each other eyeball to eyeball, we would say, this is your hope. This is your inheritance. This is your calling. This is the power of God. How were you able to keep up a Bible reading plan all of this month with such a busy schedule? The Lord's power. How were you able to take a meal to someone who is hurting this week? Another believer. 
How are you able to do that? By the Lord's power. How are you able to even get up this morning knowing that every single joint and pain, every single joint in your body is hurting and get on your knees and pray for your brothers and sisters by the Lord's power? How are you able to even show up on a Sunday morning to be with all of those crazy people in Comac? By the Lord's power. The Lord's power not only saves you, but gives you hope. And this hope goes beyond our grave. And so with that being said, we need to pray. And we need to be people of prayer. We pray that the Lord would build us up and sustain us every moment of every day. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that you have given us your spirit. Lord, we ask that you would give us a spirit of wisdom, the spirit, the Holy Spirit's work in us, that he would work in us, that we would see Christ, that we would know more of our Savior, and not just intellectually know him, but that we would know that this is the one that we have waited for and we will see face to face. Lord, we pray that you would wean us off of this world, wean us off of the cares of this world. And we pray that we would be strengthened by your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.